This is a conversation with Al Peso. Hi, Al. Hello, Sanders. So, Al, you started life as a dancer. I certainly did. And uh, I've been starting life concerned with moving my body since the age of five, as a matter of fact. So it, it, it was early on. I was doing bodybuilding. I'm going beyond before the dance, if that's okay with yes. you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I did bodybuilding, but uh, I didn't want. I was never the big, uh, kind of muscular type, and I I think I had the Greek ideal in the back of my mind: strong body, strong mind. And my wife still thinks that I have something like uh, a Greek ideal body. I kind of like that. But I, 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 I had a sense of grace. So I wasn't a muscle man, although I, I was in a, um, a gymnasium run by the most muscular man in America for four years. And by some strange, strange coincidence, while I was there, his girlfriend who lived above the uh, gymnasium had been studying modern dance. And here I am in Brooklyn, a Brooklyn kid, and very smart, and uh, I just found I had 140 IQ, by the way. I just learned that the other day. And, and uh, But I had all kinds of artistic stuff. But in that section of Brooklyn, uh, there wasn't much artistic stuff. But she happened to be studying modern dance in Greenwich Village, came down and showed us some of this stuff, I was fascinated. So I talked to a buddy of mine that we would go to that studio in Greenwich Village. He was a Martha Graham uh, disciple, and I fell in love with the stuff. So very shortly from bodybuilding, I went to modern dance. But it wasn't a dance of... Uh, Exhibition. It wasn't a dance. It was Martha Graham stuff. You want to touch the truth about existence, and uh, she did a lot of a lot of that deep psychological stuff, and I was just enthralled. And she gave me a scholarship. Uh, my buddy who came with me, when he came, he said, "Look at all the naked girls," and I thought I just saw beauty. So he didn't stick around. So, but, <laughs> so, so the you know that sense of touching the truth about existence. Exactly. I just wanted to show you the root of that. Yeah. There was something deeply artistic and deeply philosophical. I came from an Orthodox Jewish family. Fortunately, I didn't know what they were saying in Hebrew, but boy, the ritual got to me. And I knew that truth and depth was in ritual, and was still doing ritual kinds of stuff but with the movement, but not with dogma and not with fundamental stuff. Yeah. How do, how do you like that? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so that feels, it's something that feels very moving as you put this, because uh, there's a sense of connecting to the depth of motivation. Absolutely. And, um, and, and that emotional drive. Right. Uh, and what I want to highlight is that it wasn't just starting from the dance. I started, I think, from my core from the very beginning. That's probably what I want to tell you. And uh, so it wasn't that I danced and then because I knew movement. In the dance was a seeking of ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. And, and by God, uh, we found a lot of that that came about. So can I go a little further in yeah, the dance? Great, great. Okay, is this, is this okay with you? Um, I I became, well, my wife and I, uh, I met her at Bennington College. I got a scholarship at, uh, at Bennington. They needed men in their dance department, so I was there. Uh, and we got married and we got kids right away. But before that, we did showbiz stuff. 
and then we opened the dance school, and then I became the head of the dance department at Emerson College, which is a theater school. And I don't know if you know that school, but Henry Henry Winkler was one of my students, and I. <laughs> Uh, but I still tried to bring not just theater there, but the whole depth of what it means to move your body and move an audience. So we began to develop uh, ideas. How how does the body move? Um, is there just one way of movement? What's the internal state that develops into human action? Because we wanted to see, get our dancers in control of their instrument and not just move, but know how in the world their body is moving. And we developed ideas about there being three different motor systems and that that was like a braid, you know, three strands. And most people just move without taking the strands apart. So three, I mean, three strands, three, three motor systems, three yeah. kinds of movements. Yeah, and the three strands we found were connected to the brain. I guess I was scientific. Another part of me would have been at MIT had I not gone into dance, but I was scientific, and I wanted. So I, I was looking at brain structure at the same time, looking at the movement that comes out of brain structure, and we developed notions that there was um, body writing, reflexive movement. That standing upright is not something we choose to do, but something that's innate and built in. Okay, mm-hmm. and there's there's all kinds of balancing motions that come from it when we trip and catch our balance. That's uh, reflexive, body riding reflexes. And then there's the movement we do to adapt to the outside world. We call that voluntary movement, where you choose what you do, not because you feel like it, but because you want to have mastery and connect with the outside world. And uh, then there's emotional movement, and that's connected with everything that we need about life, all the limbic system stuff, all the survival stuff. So what we decided to do is teach our students to move in those separate modalities, one separate from the other, too. Right, so, they, so to be aware that, that the reflexive, voluntary, right, that, exactly. emotional... And right. to be able to select and be aware of each one and uh, and focus on one or the other. Absolutely right. But when they were just reflexive, we say, don't use controls. Just trust your reflexes. Don't have a feeling. So we had them eliminate as much as possible the other two modalities. And when they did voluntary stuff, we said, don't let your feelings come out. But hold it. But we began to see that when they were trying to do voluntary stuff, feelings leaked into it and contaminated their mastery of control. That was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when we did the pure emotion, we say, don't control it. Let it come out. And by God, we saw decorticated kinds of expression on the most primitive levels. And they would let, oh, wow, we touched their core at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And we discovered, of course, catharsis, letting this stuff come out, and it felt good. But very quickly we noted they didn't stay just feeling good. There was something missing. Can you imagine what was missing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> because we never have emotions in isolation. Emotion is an interactive process. So when you let an emotion out, I call that a shape there's an anticipation of a response. 
an accounting shape. Like when kids first move, somebody's got to respond to them. Right. And we began to see there was a linkage there. So we started to invent for every motor thing that came out for whatever emotive reason needed to be uh, accepted and responded to. So we call that accommodation. You can think of that as shape, counter shape, that there's stuff coming out of our genetic heritage, stuff coming out of our history, stuff coming out because of trauma, but it still needs an answer. So you and were you were actually you're describing that sense of actually fe feeling the absence of that missing piece. You got as it. you express the emotion, there's that shape and there's the corresponding counter shape that you long for. That you long for. And these kids now were letting stuff out that had never had answers. Okay? That, because what we have longed for that doesn't get answered doesn't disappear. It stays in the body. And our genes are expecting those answers at the right age and with the right kinship relationship. But if they don't get answered, we get frustration, the stuff gets suppressed, and it becomes symptomatic, shows up when we don't expect it to, involuntary movement. But we said, okay, let it out, and now you're going to get an answer. Right. Bingo. So that's the completion of something that, uh, that's been longing for completion. You got it exactly right. We knew that. We saw that. But then when we gave them the completion, we recognized that they, that completion shouldn't be in the present. That completion should be in the hypothetical past. So we then began to make something like a ritual with the one who provided the response They didn't improvise the response. The response had to be choreographed by the one who was feeling. That's where I'm saying about the improvisation. Yes. Because otherwise the other person who is responding will do what the heck they want and they wouldn't be fitting what the person was longing for. Right, right. So, so that uh, the focus is very much on the person, one person, uh, a, who is exploring. And exactly. then the accommodation is a work that the other person does for the specific purpose of accommodating that need. And they do that by taking a role, and we do that via ritual. They say, I am now role-playing your ideal mother, your ideal brother, your ideal sister, your ideal father, etc. So, And then we, we posit it at the age when it should have been. Yeah. Got that? Yeah. But so, you know, actually, I'm just reflecting on the choice of word as I, you know, it's very clear that just as you're talking about it, there's a richness of a process that took a long time to, to mature into its form. It Be took, it took at least seven years of exploration yeah. before it clicked into a, a therapeutic form. Yes. Because when you're simply, as you're talking very matter of factly of this is a ritual and this person plays, say, the ideal father, the ideal mother, uh, it, it's very, it, it has a, you know, it, it feels very simple when you say it. But right. I can see how, you know, to get to that point, it, uh, uh, it took yeah. quite a, an exploration. Right, because we used to let people just improvise, like, together all at once, and they would do things without speech. And then we'd say, what the heck happened there? And the other one said, oh, I was feeling like a... A two-year-old, and you felt like my father. And the other person, your father, I thought that you were a friend. And we saw there was a mismatch when yes. they did it that way. So we said, hey, we got to do this one at a time. When you do it all together like that, it doesn't fit.
So as as you are very correctly pointing out, it took years to clean all that up. So that was one part of it. But then the the other part, going back to the dance side, we then looked at how to sensitize people to the spatial placement of others to see when you move others through space, all different kind of things happen, which direction they come from, what height they come with, what speed they're coming at, what gestures. So we began to elaborate. And that's for the choreographer to know what movement, action is doing to the audience. So we looked at what happens, how do you get from what's inside to show on the outside and be sensitive, and how do you get to know more accurately what's happening on the outside and what that's doing to your inside. And we we looked at that for years and years and then... So I want to maybe slow it down a little bit because um, um, so what you're saying is in a way a correspondence of saying uh, to what goes inside is not necessarily automatically communicated. That's and right. And what goes outside is not necessarily received the same way by people. Exactly. And you did some work of um, uh, in a way clarifying what corresponds to what. Yeah, exactly. In order to gain control over that process. Yep, we began to look at interaction in a very, very clear way. And then we began to get the theory behind it, that basic needs had to be met. And what were those basic needs? You know, so it wasn't just anything. We began to get elaborate systems. But let me tell you about, I've talked about this before, probably people can read it in different articles or books, but very shortly after we started doing this seriously, the psychiatric community got interested. Here I am, an associate professor, a dancer, the psychiatric community. I became a consultant in psychiatric research because the chief of psychiatric research at the Boston Veterans Administration Hospital His children were in an early dance class that my wife was doing for the Unitarian Church. And he said, what in the heck is this? And he thought, he says, you're opening up a whole new world. So he put me under his wing and I was there five years doing research with him. And then McLean Hospital, which is a Harvard training hospital, psychiatric hospital. I was there eight years. So that, of course, elaborated the work enormously. And so, in a way, as you say that, uh, you know, the implicit part is it's still a period of transition where yep. uh, you're not, you don't have fully all your uh, orientation towards psychotherapy. The movement part, that understanding of movement is still there very strong, dance, yep. theater, art. Oh, sure. Oh, but then we made up our mind. We branched out that we wouldn't continue on just the dance. We would now consciously do psychotherapy Mm -hmm. so we were very clear and people came to do therapeutic work right that the year of transition was 1961 just 50 years ago but there was seven years leading up to 1961 where all that clarification came in how's that so far Feels very nice. It feels, it gives, uh, you know, a sense of, uh, also the, the intense creativity. Yeah. Um, in this process. Oh, but yeah. also, even as you mentioned something as serendipitous as, you know, my wife was giving this class, um, right. the part about also the interaction with the environment 
Um, yep. And so, in a way, what feels very nice is just in hearing you, there is both a sense of creativity and a sense of interaction, not something that's in isolation. That's uh, right. That that's is right. very much part of your story. That's right. exactly right. So everything became interaction. It's interesting you put that that way, because one of the people who got interested really on was a professor at Harvard in sociology, uh, Louisa Howe. And she brought in and sharpened my whole notion of interaction because that was such an important part. I forget who the professor she had studied with um, spoke about it, the interactive process. So that's at the very absolute core of what we're doing. We did it innately and then much, much more consciously as time went on. Yep. So now here we are with all that movement stuff. Okay. We developed. Then let me tell you. In the 50 years, this work keeps changing and changing and changing, but not dropping away things, but sharpening and heightening and facilitating and making things more rapid. And I'm jumping so far ahead, I hardly know where to go now. Well, let me, let me maybe suggest a, a, a comment. Um, as you're describing, you briefly touched upon the accommodating. Okay. Right, right. And so that sense of people taking on roles in the process. So right. maybe it makes sense to, to, to contrast that, for instance, to a therapy where you have one therapist, one client. Uh, and, um, and that part of the process. Okay, okay. Because what you're highlighting is, is the therapist going to be the role player? Yes. And we say, Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely. Because, and that of course is the relational therapy goes that way. That's the article I wrote for Halko Wise in that other book to, uh, how, how do we heal people and is it us that does the healing? It's the role playing on the symbolic level. The relationship is supremely important to make believability and hold the ritual aspect, but the healing is not done in the relationship. Of course, psychoanalysts can say, but everything is transference anyway, you ninny, you know, you think you're doing it the other way, but it's you and them. I don't, of course, we have a relationship, but it isn't us doing the healing because if we were the healers, we're going to get inflated on the one hand and get the marrow sucked out of our bones on the other hand, and then they going to have a count of negative transference on us for all kinds of reasons and that's going to be a heck of a thing that they're going to work at but I don't know how therapeutic that is. The analysts may not like to hear this part. Maybe you'll cut that out. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The discussion. But but you hit a very important point because we do in the role in one-to-one and now we do a lot of work in one-to-one but how we do this work and I jump this way now Serge to the more complex way and of looking at, of complicated enough, but uh, in the way we look at it. Because before we start with the body and then see what memories come up, that was sort of from the bottom up. Now we work from the top down, and I'll tell you partly why. Sometimes when you work from the bottom up and then do it, they say, I know that's very important, but it doesn't connect with my present life. Mm-hmm. So this stuff didn't have... Sometimes it didn't stick, what they did, because they saw no relevance to the present. So as the years went on, we learned to start in the present in something we called micro-tracking. 
micro-tracking present consciousness. So we wanted to make sure the observing ego was present. We call that the pilot. And that uh, they were going to talk about the absolute here and now. Is, is that okay so yes, far? Yes, and so, you're, in you're, the, so you're, in, you're in the present. And, in the present. Uh, in the present, okay. that, that's micro-tracking. So really being very, very conscious of what's happening in the here and now. Okay, and the, we, we split that into two types of being very present of the consciousness. In the here and now, uh, present consciousness consists of perception. The body instantly reacts. That's sensory mode or psychomotor, if you will. See, do. The instant you see, your brain kicks off a motor system, whether you do something about it or not, but your mind's body is reacting. And then just as William James says, you only know your emotions by getting a body reaction. So then the, the third thing that happens in sequence, you see... Your body reacts, and then you feel. Affect comes from a body state, and then you think, and you make some concepts about what you're feeling. So what we do is we microtrack the feeling in the moment that's showing on the client, and we microtrack the thoughts in the moment, knowing that what we feel now is related to the past, and what we think now is related to the past. Mm -hmm. And that we now know that present consciousness is a tapestry woven of threads of memory. So we're going to parse present consciousness, and we then the memory of what's the foundation of making us feel like that and think of that in the present pops out. Yes. I don't know. I don't. Yes. So, and what we are micro-tracking is not the body here, per se, but the face. Because when people feel, they may get a somatic thing in their body, it's totally unconscious, but it hits the facial expression instantly. Darwin talks about that, facial expression, emotions of man and animal. The instant we feel, there's a, there's a shift in the eye, and what's his name out in, um, or oh, I forget who does the, uh, uh, the face stuff. I forget his name. Mm -hmm. he, he teaches all of that stuff. But we've trained our people now to watch the face and look at all the shifts. But we, do, we report that via what we call a witness figure. We postulate a third person in the room. So it isn't the therapist saying it. We postulate, because as soon as I say, if a witness was here, the word witness makes them think there's another person in the room. Yeah. Because, and, and here we're talking about the power of words and images that come of words. So we're very careful of the words we choose, because we know every word is going to make an image, and images in the mind our body reacts to. So also. I want to, you know, just again pay tribute to the complexity of the situation that you're evoking. Um, and uh, what's happening is, uh, say, in contrast to traditional talk therapy, analytical, uh, you're not starting, in a way, from thoughts, feelings, evocations of the past, but you are in the present... Absolutely, Brent. Knowing that the past is filled, we're seeing it absolutely through the 
past. Everybody thinks their present reality is universal. It's nonsense. No two people have the same reality. Yes. It's all, all bad. And let me talk about that for just a moment because yes. when, when we see, we remember what we've seen before because we, we look at the world and we look at what's good or bad. I mean, like an infant. And then we move towards it and find out whether it's good or bad. And then we better remember what's good or bad because the next time we see something like that, we have to remember so we don't make the same mistakes or remember so we make the same good things. So that means we have storage in our mind's eye and storage in our mind's body. Every time we see, we're remembering. And every time we act, we're remembering. And when we lose that, we're Alzheimer's people, and we do know what we're looking at, and we don't know what we're feeling. So we forget that we're a bundle of history in the very moment of being. Right. Is, is that, so we, we know that. Yeah. So, uh, so what we say, to, when people are having a feeling, we postulate this. We say, if a witness was here, and we use the word witness, they imagine the word evo- that's a, a whole other thing and I'm, I've but, got but, so- but what it is what's interesting is that in a way in the room uh, there is that third person the witness and me, you got it you know Be- and, and that because we know that because if I said a word now let me say a word to you see your mother mm-hmm. but so look, you're you're the one who spoke it yeah but look what happens when you hear the word your mother what happened to you well, what happens is I felt a sense of my mind going someplace. And what did and you... Relating it, to her, and for and a you, moment, yes, being your, in connection. Your, yeah, and your body reacted. Yes. So that words make images. Uh, that's what's a powerful. You know, animals can only see what's in front of them, and they react what's in front of them. But words let you see what is not in front of you. Yes, and you can react then to what's not in front of you. That's why stories have such power, because we see it and our body reacts, whether we know it or not. Okay? Mm-hmm. So so when I say a witness is here, people are going to imagine somebody there, and they're not going to feel like I'm saying it. I say a witness would say, I see how happy you feel when you think of your mother or you talk about your mother. I only pick up what they're actually talking about. And if I put the right word on their effective state, they nod the head, yes, because it's the same thing as shape, counter shape. It fits. And whenever there's a fittedness, there's an immediate value, pleasure comes in. Okay? Mm-hmm. So then I, then I know I'm on track. Because if I put the wrong affective term, they shake their head or their eyes roll around or something, and then I attach the context within which they have that feeling. Right. So now I'm giving the prefrontal lobes information of what's going on in their affective system. So they're not only in it, they're seeing themselves in it. Okay? Yeah, and, and with that sense of you as the therapist being attuned to what it is uh, that that feels right that that's that's missing exactly. you get your information from the person's from the, reaction for instance from the, the face exactly so exactly. so that in a way you kind of oh, okay they're not quite there yes well that's right because you get that information and you're not interpreting as much as figuring out and reflecting and finding the right fit 
that fits them. Because an interpretation, the juicy interpretation, is knowing what's in the back of their mind that they don't know. Wow. And they go, holy smokes, did I feel it? And then the therapist is getting them not where they are, but where they're blind. You yeah. know, I get them where they are. Yeah, so navigating to find the blind spot. No, no, not at all. Okay. I don't look for interpretation. I simply put a name on where they are, and then they are conscious of where they are. Right. But they were ready to be conscious because it isn't so unconscious. An interpretation is something that's beyond reach. Right. Okay. So, so, so I, it's actually just helping them uh, come across and find the expression. The find the the label for that expression and the context because not only I put the label on it, I put the words that they just spoke about. They say, "Oh, my mother is such a sweet woman," and I the witnesses say, "Oh, I I see how much joy and tenderness you feel as you remember what a sweet woman your mother was." Do you follow that? Mm-hmm. I take the and then they say yes, and then they might say. Yeah, but the world is not a sweet place. That's a thought. Mm-hmm. So I say, so I put a voice of truth that says, the world is not a sweet place. And they say, that's a fact, buddy, you know. And it, it then there's connecting two parts of the brain, the affective part and the cognitive rational part, okay? Mm-hmm. So the, both are coming up to the, to the uh, prefrontal we call it the pilot. And the more you enrich the pilot of how they're feeling in the absolute present as they speak, then they start to remember, like in a Google search engine, you put in a couple of things and prrrp, everything connected to that. Then they start remembering all kinds of things. Yes. And the body immediately reacts to all the things in the past. Yes. But what I'm, what I'm struck by as you're describing it is a sense of how it comes about with a sense of amplified resonance. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good word. Exactly right. It, they get a resonance. It's connecting to parts of themselves together. And there's a resonance in the alliance. They feel not that I'm the answer, but there's an, an increase in the therapeutic alliance without being the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's very important not to be the healer or the answer, but to support their consciousness. And then when they talk about the history, we've developed a whole notion of what kind of things have to be done in history in order for us in the present to have a happy life. It's a long thing. Basic needs, place, nurture, support, protection, limits have to be met. Integration and unification of polarities. They've got to own all of themselves. The development of consciousness, the development of uh, pilot, and fulfillment of personal uniqueness and potentiality. So when they speak about the history, we're looking at what part of the agenda are they touching that didn't get met? They might say, oh, gosh, my fa- my mother was such a sweet woman, but my father was a bloody pain in the ass. Every time he came home, he made her cry, and, boy, I wish he was never there. You, you follow mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. So now they got a negative history. So we years ago, we would let them express the feeling because we thought there had to be catharsis of what had been. I don't believe in catharsis anymore. 
because now I'm reading enough, you repeat that stuff and you reinforce the memory. Now we're trying, we make healing by make a new memory of the past as it was anticipated by the genes. We don't make just pie in the sky memories. We make genetically anticipated memories. Yeah, so gener- genetically anticipated memories is a very powerful expression. There's that yep. part of completion. There's that part of it being part of our essential nature. So there's both something that feels very scientific and uh, spiritual at the same time. You got it. You got it. And it took us years to know how to play this. I'm doing it in five minutes. But remember, I've been doing this 50 years. And all the time, what are we doing? What are we doing? What works? So I wasn't saying, oh, we got it and stayed there. My bloody brain wouldn't sit still. I didn't, it wasn't me. It just wanted to keep knowing more, knowing more, knowing more. So I'm giving you some of the latest stuff. Uh, so the we would then immediately do now, we immediately do reversals. So when they talk about a mother or father who is a pain in the ass, we say, first, let me put this part out. When they say any figure that's coming up in the mind, they mention their mother, they mention their father, we say, pick an object. Now, we don't have role players, okay? But even in a group, I do it. I say, pick some abstract object, a stone, a shell, whatever, whatever, to be what we call a placeholder for the mother and a placeholder for the so it isn't as if the mother was in the room and you're doing a psychodramatic replay Mm -hmm. or the father we don't do that at all we're just externalizing the association fields in the brain we're making a platform in the floor so when they look at it they're going to not remember one event they're going to remember everything about their mother that's a filing cabinet not your mother so that's also where it relates to ritual yep that's exactly. something that's much more symbolic than uh, the specificity of any moment. You got it precisely. And that took a long time to get there because we did role plays and we noticed in the role play, my God, people, they say my mother when I was five years old or my father, they would go and, and, and have the ancient feelings of those times would come over them like we did with our dancers. And it didn't do much good to feel that miserable or that furious Although it looks dramatic and therapeutic, it doesn't have that much value. We did a lot of that. But which, but the real value comes from making the new memory. So as soon as they speak about a negative aspect, I say, let's invent. And I do a gesture like this, as if I'm putting something through space right beside them. So making a new arena around their body where they're going to start imagining how another figure would be there that the genes was anticipating and they're not looking at it, but they can experience it. So I call that, what if, let's invent now an ideal father who would have none of the characteristics of your real father. And he would say, if I was your ideal father, I wouldn't be a pain in the ass. I would be a loving father for you and a loving husband to your mother. And I wouldn't be away all the time. You follow that? Yes. So we do it, and the language has to be clear, and then they may see and experience. They may get a body reaction and say, oh, what a different life I would have had, you know, if I had such a... So little by little, we build that up. So now the, the therapist is not there. The therapist postulating some figure who's going to be there. But so, and, uh, 
you say little by little. So it's not, we're not talking about catharsis, something that happens in five minutes. You're talking yeah. about a, a process that can be lengthier. Oh, sure. But they, it, I'm talking about that right now, a, a usual 50 minute or one hour session. Mm-hmm. And this, this would go on immediately in, uh, I put placeholders on the floor and then reversals. And little by little we build, they begin to now connect what they're feeling in the absolute present with a pattern in the past. Because they may, I jump way ahead, they may talk about their boss and we, and they say, oh, I'm having a terrible time. What a pain in the ass that guy is. I can't stand him. So we put a placeholder for the boss and they'll talk about it and we might invent what an ideal boss would be. But I don't believe in making new memories in the present, but making new memories in the past. But then they'll say, but my boss, you know what? He's like my father that I spoke to you about. Mm-hmm. So then we take a little piece of paper and we call it the principle of your real father that's showing up on the boss. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. place it on there. Now, you could call that projection, but we're going to do a ritual about that because it isn't just projection. That means in the, in the associational uh, fields in the brain, the two are linked. Those neuronal sets yes. are linked. Yes. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is, uh, yes, that's that the, the, the connections in the brain between yeah. the history of the past and yeah. you know, the, the perception of the present moment right. and how and it affects it. But what you're doing, in a way, it's like uh, it's making visible in the room with the placeholder or with that little piece of paper, you're making that presence of the past into the present visible in the room. That's right. And they, their pilot is now looking at it. Instead of them automatically reacting to the boss without even thinking that it's the father and there's all kinds of history tied up in there, there's no thinking. It just happens. But now they're looking at that piece. But we can't do that move until they ultimately have a belief in that ideal father. Because you have to cure the history before you can move that little piece. Right. And no, so, no. so there's the possibility that in a way the past makes it impossible or very hard for this person to believe it would ever be possible That's that such it. a thing as the good father would exist or the ideal yeah. father would exist. You got it. You got it. Now, some people accept the ideal father. Some people accept. And then we have a new ending. You can move this stuff. But a lot of people then resist. Here's the whole, and this is the latest stuff, seven years later stuff, seven years ago it started. What makes resistance? And that was fascinating, and that's the, what I want to talk about now. Because at some point they may say, what do you mean, ideal father? What kind of jigsaw junk are you giving me? And you get, boom, negative trance, they're going to knock you right off. And you say, what are you kidding? You're fantasy. One part of them is longing for the father. And you talk about it, and they'll tell you, you know, that there's no such thing, blah, 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 blah. But when they have that resistance, now we know that resistance comes from a third kind of memory, okay? There's three kinds of memories now. There's our genetic storage. That's not a conscious memory. That's a memory of everything that was useful and livingful from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. That's our, And we're following that. Then there's our personal autobiographical history, which is uh, either a satisfaction of those things or a frustration of those things. And we're seeing the world through that. But there's another kind of memory, memory of stories of injustice. 
when there's a story of injustice, one part of our brain, without knowing it, jumps through time and heals the injustice with a piece of our own self. So, so it's really thinking of injustice again as something that's uh, not completed, that, that's that right. calls for oh, completion. You're beautiful. You've got it. Oh, thank you, Serge. I wish everybody would get it so fast. Yeah, exactly, because it's still part of making things whole. Yeah. There's an innate healing is holing. We've got to make things whole. And when we hear holes in networks of our family, holes in our culture, and holes in our religious groups, or, or holes in the cosmos even, one part of us has to make it whole. Mm-hmm. But we don't do it consciously. It's automatic. And I call that some part of our brain makes a movie that we are the star of, but we don't see it. We're not in the audience, but our bodies are tremendously affected by that movie which we don't know we made. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, 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 yeah. And now we're talking about how the body is affected by stories before it's affected by deficits. Now we're going to see how the body is affected by stories. So how careful we have to be, what stories of injustice we tell children, because they're going to be, I call that the Messiah gene. There's one part of us that is like the Messiah. We think the Messiah is the one and only, but each one of us, tries to be the one and only. That's why we like the Lone Ranger. That's mm-hmm. why we like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. They're going to go out and heal everything, flying through time and space. And so one part of our psyche flies through time and space and heals it. If there's a hole, let's say three generations back, great-great-grandma lost a husband in the Civil War or something, and then she had to raise kids by herself, and they... Everybody knows that story. So what we do is we say, let's make a movie of great-great-grandma. We'll put her on another spot on the floor, not where we have the placeholders, but another arena. And we say, this is your grandma, great-grandma, a young woman, and we're going to give her an ideal husband. And he's going to say, if I was your husband, there'd be no war, and I would be your loving husband your whole life. And they go, wow, you know what? Our whole family would be so different if she'd had that. You know, they begin to, because we know the present through the lens of the past. You change history, by God, you have a cascade effect. Yes. But you know, I think when you're telling this, I'm also aware of, it's interesting, it's good when you place it in the context of ritual, which is that, you know, by that point, by the time you make it, I assume that's what's implicit. It's a relationship, the room, what's happening in the room. There's a degree of, um, of a presence. Uh, yep. that allows for the person to see it and feel it and resonate with it sure, in sure. a way that we, in ordinary consciousness they wouldn't. That's the ritual part. We call that providing the possibility sphere. That's the function of the client, of the therapist, sorry, to make a kind of space of possibility around them where these things could happen and it's possible that our genetic needs are going to be responded to. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's, that the, the therapist does do that. And that, you have to be, you have to know ritual and you have to know clarity of relationship in order to do that. 
because otherwise I'd end up being the ideal great-grandfather, I'd end up being everybody, you know, transference, you're everybody. But here we're building all that stuff, and they're feeling the safety that gets built up between the therapist and the client. So you're highlighting that, I think, very, very nice, very clearly. So, but little by little, uh, let me tell you, when people ha- make this movie that they are the healer, they don't know they've become the great-grandmother's husband, okay? It releases those nuclear energies that were limited and should have been limited in maturational time. The nuclear energies of aggression and sexuality, the Freudian id, it bops loose in them, and but they don't know they're feeling sexuality, they don't know they're feeling aggression, they're just in turmoil inside. And then they get, they talk about anxiety, blah, 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 blah. And so one of the things that happens, and all of us it happens to, we fill holes and rolls, that stuff gets loose, and then it makes the shrinkage, not it, but the, those new movies that we made shrink our receptor sites and make it impossible to take in what we long for. So when we put out unwittingly like that in a movie, it shrinks the capacity to take in and they won't believe what they're longing to get. So we found when we make these movies and then we might make a movie that their mother had parents and that everything was, we make all the movies that should have been done. They say, Oh my God, I feel as if a burden came off my shoulders and I can take a deep breath. And so he said, well, why don't we have an ideal father? And he says, if I was your ideal father, you could have been that comfortable. He said, yeah, that's right. Now they can take in with what they couldn't take in when they were resistant. So that's the other part of this work. When you describe the, it feels, what feels very beautiful, you describe the resistance, you know, which has almost a negative quality. But you describe also the movie that happens to do that. It feels very clear then the mechanism of that movie is, you know, a traumatic, something that's too overwhelming and hijacks the present by bringing you to that past. That could be. And you're you're placing that movie with another experience. We make, we, we make new movies where there is justice, there is completion. They don't have to be the completer. Yeah. And then they could just be themselves instead of being the one who puts out and can't take in. Right. But so, again, uh, very powerful, very moving, when you say they don't have to be the completer, is uh, putting somebody in a role that is impossible and in a yeah. way traumatizing because it's overwhelming and impossible. You got it. Instead of in a way being supported in a larger yeah. environment where the completion Absol- flows. Absolutely. And everybody who has heard these unjust stories early on has a difficulty having their basic needs met because their bodies are still loaded with everything that they filled up. So we have to make movies like crazy of all the different things and little by little they take in and then when they finally take in that good father that we started with and they can feel comfortable with him, then they can look over at the boss because they start scanning. They come back and they scan and they say, you know what, the boss doesn't look so bad anymore. So I say, let's take the principle 
of your real father off the boss, and we make a ritual. We kind of like pluck it off. Sometimes uh, I have them do it, and in the group we'd have a, a ritual, a symbol, a symbol mover, a principal mover. They lift it off, put it all across, and plant it in the true object. And then the present gets cleaned up mm -hmm. a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And they see it, they, they see the present with different eyes and not through the lens of all that bad history and all that frustration. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of come into, <sighs> I'm sad. So we started with so much expression, and now we're ending up doing the expression so much more subtly. I guess that's what I'm trying to highlight. Yeah. So we don't have to do all that big motoric screaming and yelling. By God, we have to have people scream and holler. Why did you do that to me? I hate you. And and they let all. And it felt good in some of it, but the real good that we did in all those years was the new memory. And we thought all that dramatic other stuff was part and parcel of it and had to be there. And now we hardly touch it. But boy, the change comes so much faster and resistance is lowered so much faster. That's where we are now. So that feels very beautiful. I really appreciate <laughs> your sharing this. <laughs> this recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com Big motoric, screaming and yelling. By God, we have to have people scream and holler, why did you do that to me? I hate you. And and they let all, and it felt good in some of it, but the real good that we did in all those years was the new memory. And we thought all that dramatic other stuff was part and parcel of it and had to be there. And now we hardly touch it. But boy, the change comes so much faster and resistance is lowered so much faster. That's where we are now. So that feels very beautiful. I really appreciate <laughs> your sharing this. <laughs> this recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com